Hello everyone and welcome to the Africa Museum podcast, the podcast channel for the Royal Museum for Central Africa in Belgium. My name is Gabrielle Fenton and for this series I've been walking around the museum's labs, offices and archives to meet with scientists who work here. Each scientist had to choose one object that is somehow related to their research. It could be an object that they have worked on or with, or an object that simply carries a bit of their passion for their field. Some of these objects are on display in the museum, others belong to the nitty-gritty of everyday research. All of these objects have an interesting story, and that is what we are out to find out. How do you give a new life to objects that are showing the ravages of time? How do you restore objects without knowing much about how they were made in the first place and what they were made from? This week, we're meeting with object conservator Siska Genbrücke to discuss exactly that. So we are here to talk with Siska Kenbrücke, who is the coordinator of the museum's conservation lab. The object that Siska has chosen is one that her team is currently working on. It's a dance costume from the Pende population in Kibunda in Congo. It's a full-on body and mask outfit which was brought here in the 1950s by the museum's ethno- ethnography curator at the time, Albert Masson. The costume is a brownish earth color. As I said, it's a full body costume. Um, Siska, could you perhaps start by describing it to us through your eyes as a art historian and ob- uh, object conservator? Yeah. Um, so what you see in front of you is uh, an uh, enormous uh, dance costume. And the first thing that is very striking is that it has an a very large torso. The torso is made of uh, of branches that are um, a whole structure, in fact, on the inside. And uh, these are lightweight branches. And on top of these branches, um, a whole burlap is sewn. The burlap is made from old sacks of flour and mm-hmm. grain. And you still have the, the print of the, the, the brands of the, the grain on uh, printed onto the burlap okay. so it was sewn together and then placed on top of that frame so you have this enormous torso frame and in the front you have two little holes and that's the holes where the hands go of the dancer so the person who wears the dance costume he has to put his hands really in the front of his torso and then on the shoulders you have like two little fluffs of chicken feathers <laughs> and uh, on top of that enormous torso there's a really really small head and the head is made of a, a wooden sculpted mask. And then you have kind of a beard and hair made from raffia. The whole, the head and the torso is painted in a, in a typical reddish brown paint. And then on top of that reddish brown paint, you have polka dots and they're black, white, and also gray. the red. Oh, and red, yeah, yeah. The yeah. black is a bit grayish black, but it's, it's black though. And then uh, on the bottom of the torso, you have a skirt and the skirt is made of raffia and it's quite a a broad skirt. So the the dance costume is completely disproportionate. You have a really broad, big torso and a wide skirt, then 
teeny tiny pointy shoulders with chicken feathers <laughs> and then a head. So it looked very funny. And that's also a reason why I chose it, because it makes me laugh when I see it. <laughs> and often like African sculptures are very serious, but this one really is a... Yeah, is a funny one. Is so, a funny one. Yeah. So there's lots of different materials involved yes. in it. And um, yeah. do you by any chance know how much it weighs? Yeah, it's very lightweight because you have okay. lightweight material. You have raffia and, and plant fibers. They're really lightweight material. The burlap is also not very heavy and the wood is also a lightweight wood. So it's about seven kilos. So for such an enormous structure, it's really lightweight. Lightweight. Luckily for the dancer that has to wear it, of course. So could you actually, I know you're here to talk to us about the conservation and the restoration mm -hmm. of this object, but could you give us a little bit of context to imagine what sort of person would have worn this back in the 1950s or earlier, what sort of um, mm -hmm. situation they would have worn it in? Yeah, so I did a little bit of background research. When we do conservation, we always do a little bit of background research on how the, where the object comes from and what it was used for. And so uh, I found out that it was... Uh, used in a, a ceremonies but uh, normally most of the masks that we have the mask the dance costume from that region they're from the pande they're typical um, initiation dance costumes so mm -hmm. they're used for initiations but this one is uh, different it uh, it is, has been used for uh, to dance with when you have an unsuccessful hunting expedition so okay. if if the hunting was failing if they didn't have enough game then uh, they would dance with this costume on. Okay, so um, why did you decide to start a treatment on this particular costume? Yeah, the reason why we started this treatment, so it was me, but also with my team and especially my intern, uh, Hanneke, who's working on this, uh, this uh, the treatment of this dance costume. It started because um, we had a, a request for a loan from Switzerland. So in this object, this dance costume would be part of the, a larger loan for an uh, exhibition in Switzerland in Zurich. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so what happens normally is we take an object out of, of storage, we check if it's good enough for display, and if it's not, then we perform a treatment. Mm -hmm. Not only for display that we check it, but also for transportation. Mm -hmm. So it has to survive a transport towards Zurich and of course then it has to be displayed so you cannot just display it because in storage the object is just placed in a cabinet and not on a mount and such a dance costume of course it has to be displayed on a on a mount on a support system mm -hmm. and that support system is made in-house normally in uh, in our conservation lab with uh, mount makers and then also of course with a uh, conservators but so so this costume is on its way to switzerland soon yeah well there was a little um a little yeah problem and I, it's not really a problem but there was a change of uh, loan so they decided to withdraw the object from the ah. loan unfortunately so the work has been done but unfortunately a couple of weeks ago we heard that the object is not going on loan anymore it was uh, yeah taken a from the list for loaned objects. Oh, what a pity. Yeah, really. But that doesn't mean that we cannot do the, the treatment. Now that we're halfway through the treatment, we will just finish it and it will be ready for the next loan if there's another loan coming up. And otherwise it will be better preserved in storage. So it's a win-win situation also for us. So are there a lot of these, are there a lot of similar costumes in the museum's um, uh, 
storage. storage yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, no, in fact, this is a unique one. I've never encountered such a costume. So I, like I said, there were some other costumes in the Pende, but used by the Pende, but they're, they're different and they're more like a open work uh, type of costumes. Mm-hmm. They don't look as funny as this one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never encountered one, uh, a dance costume that was used for successful hunting. And yeah, of course, the research, uh, the, the, the object is also unique because it was collected by Albert Maassen, who was one of our ethnographers in mm-hmm. our museum. And so he describes in his field notes why it was used for. Mm-hmm. So that makes it really unique that we have and the object and somebody that really saw the, 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 the ritual and okay. then described the ritual and then took the object back. So it's like a, a very unique situation. And that's also why the mask is, dance costume is, is asked to be shown, of course. So could you briefly take us through the different steps of the restoration process? Yeah, 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 of course. So uh, once we have a storage and so once an object is asked for loan, then we go to the storage, we take it out of the storage. And then the first thing we do is normally we take pictures because it's very important to know how an object looked like when before we do any treatment. Okay. So we take pictures of the object and we describe the object. So we really take a day or two days to fully do visual inspection of the object to see where the damages are. So we, we make a difference between structural damages, which mm-hmm. are damages that uh, that are very like that are very uh, difficult that are that really uh, um, have to do with the structure, the integrity of the object. So yeah. that object doesn't fall apart. Like if there's a big crack and you cannot put the object on display because otherwise it will just break in half. Mm-hmm. That's a structural um, like a structural problem. But then of course you have also more surface problems and and more uh, little aesthetic problems with objects that there's like stains on on the tissue or mm-hmm. things like that so they're less like they're less necessary to be treated but sometimes a visual uh, uh, imperfection like sometimes the deterioration a visual de- deterioration can be very disturbing for the viewer and it really focuses the 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 sight of the viewer towards that that uh, deterioration aspect so we don't want that of course neither so we always try to find a balance between uh, a, a good structural restoration and and then of course the visib- the readability of the object has to okay. be okay. So first we do to come back to my uh, initial uh, talk. The, we first do a, um, a visual inspection of the objects, and we distinguish between all the different types of deterioration, mm-hmm. and then we uh, we try to analyze and identify also the materials and the techniques that were used. Okay. Uh, we do that also through visual inspection, but sometimes that's not enough. And mm-hmm. we have, luckily, we are in a, in a multidisciplinary institution and we have biologists, wood biologists and ornithologists in our midst. So, so you just go consult. knocking at people's doors, Indeed. asking, what is yeah. this? Yeah, we consult with our colleagues and uh, sometimes they help us uh, finding uh, the, the identification 
of certain materials, especially wood biology with Hans Beekman. He mm-hmm. has a good department where they really, you give them a sample of the wood and they can ID the wood. Mm-hmm. Um, so that ha- happens quite often, especially for CITES, because if objects go on loan to okay, a, yeah. a foreign country, we... Um, you have to deal with customs mm-hmm. and now customs is very strict because there's a, a lot of protected species and these species cannot travel mm-hmm. unless they're identified and approved. So uh, that's why it's very important also to identify uh, materials that are going on loan. And then, for example, we also have bird feathers. I told you about the shoulders with yeah. the little fluffs of feathers. These were uh, identified by Alain Rigel. And they, uh, they turn out to be partially Gallus gallus domesticus and partially another type of feather, but I forgot the name of it, but uh-huh. it was identified. So it's really nice to, to consult with your colleagues yeah. and, and to help uh, create a better, uh, a better picture of the whole object and the way it was made. So I told you about the materials, but of course we also check on the techniques. Because okay. there's a lot of techniques that have been used in, in Africa, that in Central Africa, that we don't know. Yeah. We've, we've forgotten or we don't know how things are made. So and so you go through trying to understand the techniques. Yeah, the techniques, weaving techniques, yeah. knotting techniques, a lot of textile techniques often, like fiber techniques that have been used, but also painting techniques. And in this case, for example, you see that the raffia has been um, has been treated and they have cut little slits of it. And then, you know, these little gift wrapping um, ribbons yeah. that you sometimes make a little curl in it. Yeah. That's what they did with the raffia. Uh-huh. So you have little curls in the in the uh, in the raffia strings. Which and gives it's it bounciness. Yeah, it gives yeah. it more a vivid look, uh, a lively look. So that's one of the techniques that has been used. And also the feathers, they're knotted together in a certain way with a, a, a technique that is typical yeah. for the pende, so that you also have. And then, of course, the, the painted dots, they're very regular. So somebody must have used a special technique to apply these and a special material. This is not done with a paintbrush. Yeah. So some tool has been used to to apply these dots so you see a lot of different techniques also the wood carving technique so which might mean that more than one person has made the object and that also makes it interesting to see whether this object has been made by one person or, or yeah. how it has been put together how it's been created and so, so in this in this so there you're kind of uh, finding all of the techniques, then I'm guessing you start doing the actual uh, rest- restoration of, yeah. of the object. Um, yeah. So it, does everything always go to plan in, in, no, in the actual restoration? So yeah, the first thing that you do, I, I told you about it, that you have to check which type of, uh, um, which type of problems there are with the yeah. object and then you have to really make sure that you only treat your problems that are very urgent and like that mostly affect the structural integrity of the object. So, uh, and we have a, a set of rules and guidelines there. Okay. Like conservators learn them in school and they're also set by ICOM CC, the conservation uh, uh, part of the ICOM. And they're very specific. And one of them is, of course, that you have to clean the object. You have yeah. to dust it or dry cleaning, we call it, or wet cleaning. But in this case, for example, the student uh, told me, the intern, like, oh, yeah, we should clean the object. We should dust it with a vacuum cleaner. But of course, it's full of powdery pigments. So that's really not the best idea. So 
maybe you plan and maybe that's the first step that you learn normally in conservation treatment like oh, uh -huh. you have to test something but that doesn't mean that's the best option for the object so, so you, you have, have to, to be very that. flexible in your you have to be very flexible and it's every object is unique so you have to approach every object in a different way you really have to take time to think sometimes in this hectic world it's very difficult but our job is really sometimes to just lock yourself in the lab focus on the object and really take your time to think what am i going to do with it because everything you do it alters the object mm -hmm. and you have to make the right choices mm -hmm. but so we seclude ourselves but we also communicate with each other of course <laughs> so we first look at the object we propose a treatment and then we discuss it amongst us and often with the curator to see if he's agreeing because sometimes he has new insights in how an object was uh, was used and sometimes okay. we think something is a stain but in fact it's a ritual stain and you cannot remove it ah, or okay. something is broken but it was yeah. meant to be broken or some ceramics have holes in them but yeah. they were burial ceramics so they're used they, they have to have a hole so it's part of the object so it's not a good idea to yeah to fix the hole and to mend the hole if it was not meant to be so that's problems you like things you encounter that are sometimes unexpected but you have to brace yourself for the unexpected and try to do the best you can with the treatment. so you were talking a little bit about the before already about the how much you, you so for example in this case you kind of realized it was probably made by more than one person yeah how much do you actually know about the process in which it was made uh yeah. by, by the people who made it yeah all what we have are currently visual observations. So I don't really know a lot about the processes except for the things that I can read from the object itself. Uh -huh. So, and by making dummies, so often we make dummies, we create replicas of mm -hmm. parts of the object to treat them because you have to know what you're treating before you can treat it. And that really gives us an insight on the making process of a these type of objects that give you, for example, in this, in this uh, instance, it mm -hmm. gives you a good insight on how the paint layers were applied and which one comes above which one. Okay. And that type of uh, that type of uh, techniques are very clear, but only when you do them and you try to to copy them, and uh, when you when you try to emulate their techniques. So that's uh, that's the way that we discover most of the uh, of our the techniques that were used. Do you know anything about uh, how it was passed on to Albert Masson in, in in the 1950s? Yeah, I know what is has been found in the, in our database uh -huh. and what has been found in the sources that are linked to our database. And there it states that he was going on a field trip and um, the object is described in his field notes where he went on a field trip between 1953 and 1955. Mm -hmm. And during that time, he observed the ritual. So he uh, collected uh, the object while he was uh, on his field, on his field uh, trip, trip and he uh, and then the, the object immediately came to, into our uh, into our storage because the interesting part of our numbering system is that you part of the number is the date that, uh, that it arrived. the object arrived okay. in the museum so that's always a good uh, Telltale. And was it sign. exposed at any any point, or was it in the? No, it has always been in in storage, and it was rediscovered a couple of years ago by our curator Julien Volpaire, and then he wrote about it, and then uh -huh. then it was displayed again. So now it's that must a have lot been a, a, an interesting uh, 
find. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, sometimes you encounter uh, objects in our that people have forgotten. They're, of course, they're in our museum, they're well registered, they're well in our storage, and we have pictures of them, but sometimes people don't take, uh, they don't have attention for them until yeah. they, some, they pass by and they're like, oh, this is interesting. And that, that's uh, yeah, how things get rediscovered in storage. So I'm going to ask you a little bit more of a personal question yeah. now. Um, so before becoming a conservator, you were an art historian, is that that's yeah, right? That's so what, what got you interested into object conservation and also more specifically into African art conservation? Yeah, so I, I studied art, con uh, art history before I started uh, my studies of art conservation because uh, I always was interested in conservation, but it was a very specific field. And like, when you're young, you want to have a broad, a broad horizon and a broad base. So I decided first to go for art history because it's a very broad uh, education. And I was also very young, of course, when you're 18, I don't think you're very, <laughs> that you're ready to, con yeah, you think you're ready to conquer the world, but you still have a lot to learn. So I, I really, I, I'm very happy that I first had a good basic mm -hmm. um, education in, in art in art uh, history. And then I still had the, the feel that I, I wanted to do conservation even mm -hmm. after my studies. So then uh, I decided to go look for a conservation program. But I quickly realized that that in most museums, objects are made out of a lot of materials. And in, in Belgium, you have... Most of the educational programs in conservation are focused on one material, for mm -hmm. example, metal conservation okay. or glass conservation. <laughs> and that was a bit too too restrictive for me, so I tried to look a, a, across the borders and I found a program in, in the US. So I went to the United States to uh, study conservation of ethnographic and, and archaeological objects. And so I rolled into the ethnographic field and then I did an internship during my studies in the US. I went back for a couple of months and did an internship at the Africa Museum. And that's when I realized, okay, this is where I have to be later on. Okay. So uh, the moment and afterwards I did a little detour in, in the US and I worked in the US for a while. And then uh, once a job came, a job opening uh, was announced on the website, I applied for it and... Yeah, that's how I ended are. up here, and that's about five years ago, so time flies. Cool. But uh, yeah, it was a, a nice uh, ride for now, so <laughs> very And happy. so once once this dance costume is exposed, yeah. hopefully soon, um, what what do you hope people will learn from seeing it? What, what story do you hope they'll leave with? Yeah, so I really hope that people see that this is more than an object, that this is more than just a dance costume, uh, an old dance costume. It had, I really hope that they see the ritual behind it, the music, the, the, the story behind this whole mask. So I hope that they see it as a, an object that is alive. And mm -hmm. this is part of our uh, biggest challenges as a conservator is how to display an object in a way that it is really it looks alive and not just like a stiff old object but something that is that that has a the extra dimension of ritual in it so in a, in a more vivid way and in the meantime meanwhile preserving the object and and make sure that the condition of the object is at all times good mm -hmm. and that it doesn't degrade during ex exposition and it's a very very difficult difficult challenge because 
you have, of course, light exposure, you have humidity, you have mm -hmm. all these questions about about uh, the environment that you have to take into account. And on top of that, you have your structural support that has to be very good. And especially if you want to show it in a way that you see the movement of the costume in the display. And that is one of the biggest challenges. Well, it's definitely a, a super fascinating object. So I'm sure people who see it will will get a little bit of that sense of how alive it yeah. is. But thank you yeah. very much for uh, sharing all of this with us, Siska. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for listening to the Africa Museum podcast. How are volcano maps of difficult to access regions made in the 1960s? Next episode, we will be meeting with volcanologist and geologist Benoit Metz to discuss maps, volcanoes and monitoring systems. This series is brought to you by the Royal Museum for Central Africa in Belgium, which is a museum and a cross-disciplinary scientific institution with over 80 scientists from biology, earth sciences and social sciences conducting research on Africa and its heritage around the world.